Welcome to Looking at Lucasfilm, the podcast with a different perspective on the world of Star Wars, Indiana Jones, and all of the other entities that George Lucas, Kathleen Kennedy, and the rest of the team at the Lucasfilm have dreamed up over the past 40 years. I'm entertainment writer Jim Hill, and my co-host, the one, the only, Dan Z, are recording on Wednesday, March 18th. Look, folks, I don't need to tell you, uh, if anyone who's been paying attention to the news, what with... Uh, all of this social distancing and possibly being housebound to, I guess we're all hoping, just to the beginning of April. Yeah. Uh, we could all use some good news right about now. I can have something to look forward to, um, which is why I am thrilled that for the, at the, the, as we're starting tonight's show, uh, we have something cool and new to talk about. Something that will be arriving on store shelves in October of this year, and that's the Star Wars book which has been written by Pablo Hildago, Cole Horton, and, and this name here seems very familiar for some reason. Wait a minute, Dan, that's your name? That is me. Yes, I am one of the authors of the Star Wars book. Thank you for asking about it. <laughs> you know, that, and, uh, you know we, we were pre-gaming for the show tonight, and first of all, it's the Star Wars book that's, no longer available, right? Because it's already sold out. It was, I mean, you you got to reveal that you were doing this on Tuesday, yet yesterday on Twitter, right? And it's, yeah, it's clean. <laughs> um, and that, so now, if you go to Amazon, at least at the time of this recording, yeah, uh, it's currently unavailable because I guess all the pre-order copies that allocated are already gone, which is oh. well, honestly, insane and mind blowing. I can't believe it. I cannot believe it. You and Stephen King. I, I, this is amazing. So, uh, now I guess again, at this point, given that we're months out from the actual physical book, we're not sure. able to really get into too many specifics, but there is the description of the book one could find over at Amazon, which reads as follows. Uh, if you want to comprehend the epic and intricate Star Wars saga, this is the book for you. It is a unique and insightful examination of this beloved franchise, including Star Wars, The Mandalorian, Star Wars, The Clone Wars, and Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker. Written by Star Wars experts, including fan favorite Pablo Hildago, this book is packed with stunning film and TV stills, uh, illuminating infographics, and curated essays that reveal the mysteries of the Star Wars galaxies. Uh, from legendary heroes like Luke Skywalker and Leia Organa to fascinating species like the Wookiees and the Tusken Raiders, this book explores central characters, technology, governments, and events that shape this epic saga. Uh, let's see. This book is divided into key areas, the galaxy, science and technology, the Force, Skywalkers, <laughs> galactic governments and its dis dissidents, and galactic denizens. Whether you are a devoted Star Wars fan or a casual reader curious to learn more, Star Wars, the Star Wars book, and by the way, the, the, the full title of this thing is The Star Wars Book Expands Your Knowledge of a Galaxy Far, Far Away, is an invaluable roadmap. Um, okay, so 224-page hardcover being published by DK and arriving October, well, right now, uh, our projected arrive. Uh, October 20th, 2020. Uh, I say that with some hesitation because you and I, Dan, have discussed, for right. example, with the, the Rise of Skywalker uh, art of book, um, which 
I think isn't that supposed to just now be arriving in 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 bookstores? Yes, it sure is. Yeah, and who knows what's going to happen. So uh, again, can you talk? You know, because obviously this this has to be thrilling for somebody like you who has studied Star Wars and talked about Star Wars for years and years now. You know, to, to have this sort of opportunity, uh, and and also you know, Pablo and Cole are kind of the big dogs, aren't they? Yeah, they're they're uh, they've got some pretty serious uh, clout in the Star Wars universe. I, I mean, obviously, both of them have written a lot of books. Pablo, of course, is a standout because he's um, a key cog in the Lucasfilm story group. Uh, and I and I've you know I've I've chatted with him in person many a time. Uh, it's been really really cool collaborating with these guys. And in fact, Cole told me on Twitter that apparently the at celebration, the new Star Wars author, it's their job to buy drinks for everybody. So I guess come find me, and I'll bring my visa. <laughs> um so it yeah it's it's a it's a wonderful thrill I, I can honestly say back when um there was a star wars quiz book um mm-hmm. uh back by rusty miller that was came out after the empire strikes back came out uh back in 1980 it was a it was a i think he was a sixth or seventh grader he wrote a star wars trivia book i remember reading that back in 1980 thinking about how lucky he was and how great it would be to actually write a star wars book i've certainly wanted to do it uh since then easily. And so it's, it's absolutely a dream come true. I feel very blessed and fortunate. Again, honestly, you know, the, the, for, to have this sort of opportunity come along, it couldn't happen to a more deserving, nicer guy. So very much looking forward to, uh, you know, the, to get my hands on this one come October and actually kind of feel sorry for you come star Wars celebration because if God, if they get you a Doga's cantina, you better have given a lot of <laughs> yeah. Um Yeah, well, thank you for the cameras. I really appreciate that. And um, yeah, when that happens, I'll just say that talk to my associate, Mr. Jim Hill. Oh, did, yeah. He's got, he brought the visa today. Oh, oh okay. That's, that's what? Yeah, Nancy calling me. I just, what? I have to go. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, moving on to other news. I mean, again, Obviously, with what's going, what's going on all over the world right now, uh, you know that that lots of kids stuck at home, uh, lots of parents desperate to find new things to entertain them, uh, which was why it was kind of nice uh, this past weekend to, to hear the news that Walt Disney Studios Home Entertainment had decided to move up the digital HD release date of uh, Star Wars Episode Nine: The Rise of Skywalker from Tuesday, March 17th to uh, Sunday, March 15th. And um, I, I have my review copy sitting here right now, which, again, I, I haven't opened yet. And friends have, have been telling me, I really, 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 I mean, it's it's one thing to look at the film, but it it's a two-hour documentary that goes with this, The Skywalker Legacy. Have you seen this yet, Dan, or...? I haven't. It's 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 killing me not to, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I'm really looking forward to it. I got invited to see it at the El Capitan for a mm-hmm. big screening, but of course, at that point, we actually had school then, so mm-hmm. I didn't. So I didn't get a chance to go. But the people I do know who have seen it have said it's just absolutely stunning. I mean, in two hours, I mean that's that's probably worth the price of admission itself. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Now um, you haven't seen it yet either. Oh, I got. I had this podcast to write. I should see, but again, soon as soon as we get this one out the door, I'll well, let's a- do, let's make that for our next show to talk about that. That'd be fun. Uh, but but what I did find time well to read, not watch, 
Uh, my daughter Alice uh, got me for my 61st birthday uh, a copy of the brand new Cinefix magazine, uh, issue 169, uh, which not only has a terrific article uh, by uh, Joe Fordham uh, about the rise of Skywalker, it has an equally intriguing uh, article uh, by Jody Duncan about the Mandalorian. And, you know, again, the weird thing is, think about it, Dan, we've been dealing with a tsunami of, of info in regard to Mandalorian and, and the yeah. rise of Walker for months now. And you think, okay, but they, there can't be any more stories to share about these two projects. And it turns out, okay, I'm wrong. Um, you know, just, a, a, you know, for example, Joe was unable to unearth, uh, about, uh, Maz Kanata that I'm pronouncing. Yes. Name? Yes. Okay. Okay, so I, I loved when this character was introduced in, uh, you know, the, the Force Awakens. You know that that you know that that she was running her own cantina, you know, out of the fringe of space, and you know, then we had that epic battle with the First Order that basically took out the cafe. Um, and but for that film, she was done as a CG character, and. Dan, did you did you know when it came time for Rise of Skywalker, uh, you know J.J. Abrams decided to go a different way with this character? No, this is completely news to me because it was so effective in in The Force Awakens, and all the actors seemed to be pretty on point. So I'm wondering, I mean, because it looked great, I didn't notice a difference, which is a, a testament to ILM, of course. But was Lupita Nyong'o on the set for this too, or did she only do voice work? I think she only did voice work this time around because huh. for Rise of Skywalker, what they did with Maz is she was rather than a CG puppet done after the fact, she was a four foot tall animatronic that was controlled via radio control, as well as a performer uh, using an Exxon Moven motion capture suit. Because huh. uh, she was motion capture, Lup Lupita actually played the motion capture in Episode Seven because they got tips from uh, from from the great one, Andy Serkis. Oh well, you know, again, you know, if you're talking about you know a guy who knows his way about you know around a performance capture suit, that's obviously Andy, right? But, but the or Drew Taylor, he's said that too. Well, you know, that again, it just he puts them on backwards, but that's another story. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Anyway, or inside out, I forget. Um, anyway, the, the, the Roger Guyette, who you know helped handle effects for Rise of Skywalker, talked about how JBJ was happy with how we'd created Maz before, but he felt we could get closer to the spirit of Star Wars if we built Maz as a puppet. Um, and what's especially fascinating to me, because we talked on a previous show about what they did to bring Leah. And, you know, into, or excuse me, Princess Leia into, or excuse me, General Organa. I'll get it eventually. Uh, to bring General Organa into um, the rise of Skywalker. And, you know, the, how, you know, taking film that had been shot for The Force Awakens and redoing the hair and, you know, the outfit and staying true, though, to uh, Carrie's performance. But, um, the interesting thing is they talk about how Maz would have a lot of dialogue scenes with Leia in uh, Rise of Skywalker. So the building an animatronic added to the authenticity of those scenes. And Maz wound up, be, according to Neil Scanlon, 
Moz wound up being the most sophisticated puppet I ever built. And now I feel like I ha really have to go watch this movie again because I thought it was CG again. You know, I did and, too. I did too. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> on the other hand, again, get you a know, sort of what I love about, you know, this particular article is they pop the hood on a number of, of <laughs> scenes in the movie. And they were talking about um, Kylo Ren's uh, in the first part of the movie, his his first interactions with uh, Emperor Palpatine. And as you if you remember, you've got the Emperor sort of in shadow, but he's in some sort of claw-like uh, mm. that allows him to move up and down and be that much more menacing to you know Adam Driver in the scene and. Um, well, first of all, they, 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 uh, what is it? they talk about how the guys who were building the rig for this thing um, didn't know. I mean, it was, they were so secret about Ian McDermott. 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 Yeah. Uh, they were so secretive about him coming back to play the emperor that, you know, the guys who were building the rig had no idea. And so here comes Ian on the set and they're like, oh, crap, this is a 75-year-old actor who we're going to it's supposed to be 20 feet up in the air on a rig and it's just oh. sort of and you know you want you want your act you know the performer to be comfortable so he can give the best possible performance you also want him to be safe uh but again the, the scene that jj had envisioned was again you know sort of the emperor looming over kylo ren 20 feet in the air so um they talked to, uh, uh, you know, Dominic Tohi, you know, who, again, worked in the physical effects for uh, Rise of Skywalker. He talked about it was a, quite a challenge to hold Ian up that high uh, and get the rig comfortable for him to act in, but at the same time keep the claw crane fluid enough so J.J. could be, you know, creative with his camera blocking. And so um, what was helpful here was, of course, that Palpatine has always had those those black flowing robes and so um you know beneath that robe uh on that rig um they basically put a bicycle seat in and and stirrup so what you know ian is basically sitting down for for much of uh this performance and more to the point he can rest his legs on you know they can bend his knees and rest his legs on the these stirrups but uh, but they put in a back support and, um, you know, it just, they did everything they could to make this, this 75 year old as comfortable and, as possible in, uh, you know, a scene that, that had to be hard to shoot. Um, on the other hand, uh, there's the, the, that scene about midway through the movie where, uh, Luke is talking with Ray about uh, when he and Leo were doing Jedi training together. And yes. uh, you remember the scene, basically oh, the helmeted. And then uh, there's a moment where, you know, they both remove their helmets and it's, you know, it's, it's genuinely startling to see a 20 year old Mark Hamill and a 20 year old Carrie Fisher. And uh, what was kind of interesting is where they got the footage from to do this. Um, ILM harvested footage from Luke's Dagobah scenes in Empire Strike Back for his vignette, uh, you know, for, for Luke's vignette in, in this scene. Whereas uh, the footage of Leia, that actually comes from the Ewok village scenes mm. 
mm-hmm. every Jedi. So yeah, and and I, I always thought that um, Luke. I thought that Hamill was just de-aged for it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess they did use his his scene from the Empire Strikes Back. Whereas with Leia, I, I knew they'd used Billy Lord as like the body double for that sequence, they and they and they and superimposed Carrie Fisher's face from Jedi in that. That one didn't look as effective, but I, but I mean, you could still work. I mean, you can I can still perfectly picture that scene. Mm-hmm. And put it in the exact scene from Return of the Jedi. I will say um, the novel, the novelization of the Rise of Skywalker. I interviewed Ray Carson, mm-hmm. the author for Stars dot com, uh, and uh, she was really great and really uh, open about a lot of stuff. But the novel expands a lot on Leia's training with Luke. It's actually quite awesome. Hmm. Okay, we'll have to seek that out. Yeah, you'll love it. Okay, uh, and finally, I know you and I when we were discussing uh the rise of skywalker i think you and i both had issues with uh you know kind of the overkill when it came to the sith star destroyer fleet that that you know the lots and lots and lots of ships well uh, thanks to the cinefx magazine i you know we now know that there are more than a thousand uh star destroyers uh in repeated symmetric symmetrical formation you know the idea is to give you the sense of this 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 amazing you know fleet that can't be defeated. On the other hand, we also now have a, a number for the Galactic Alliance fleet. Um, that's when when they all come bursting on screen, Dan. That's more than sixteen thousand ships. It's the largest wow. vessels ever generated for from a for a Star Wars movie. Um, and Dan Loeb uh, in talking about it, in order to come up with that fleet, we tapped into ships from all Star Wars properties. That includes prequels, uh, Disney projects like Star Tours and animated series. And now I feel like I have to sit there with the remote in my hand and go frame by frame to see, you know, what's there, you know, what I recognize. Sure. Um, Well, the racers from Star Wars resistance are in there. Um, yeah, there's so much. And it, like even I saw some freeze frames where people would take like green highlight mm-hmm. and circle ships, but they're so small. Even if you know it's there, it's sort of hard to tell. But I mean, I know they built all the models for it and put them in there. It's pretty cool that, how they did that. But my gosh, it's hard to spot, at least for me. Okay. Well, again, you know, the nice thing is we will all have our hands on, you know, Rise of Skywalker soon. And, you know, the Easter egg hunt will begin. That's true. And I don't want to alarm everyone, but I just noticed last week that when I read comic books now, I have to, to wear readers. And I'm like, oh, okay, I guess I'm there. So I <laughs> definitely won't spot any of these. It's any consolation. My daughter called last night, my, my just turned 26 year old daughter, and was like, I have to get classes. You're welcome. (laughs) All functionally blind. Um, Okay, now pivoting to the Mandalorian. um, Lots of great stuff uh, in regard to this this Disney Plus series. Uh, You know, for example, I I know. You know, look, I've talked to Dave Filoni. You've talked to Dave Filoni. He's one of the best, you know, interviews on the planet. As far as you're, you're talking with somebody in the Star Wars universe. Um, but he was uh, talking about he directed Chapter Five in The Mandalorian, which was, of course, the the episode that went back to uh, Tatooine. Uh, did they officially say that was Mos Eisley? They did. Oh, yeah, okay. They did. 
All right. But the interesting thing is that Dave, when he was putting this show together, and again, given that we're headed back to Mose Eisley, he wanted to make use of George Lucas's favorite characters from The Phantom Menace, which uh, kind of surprisingly are the pit droids. I um, know. It is interesting. Uh, but yeah, that, 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 you know, because again, what's interesting is when you see them in that movie, uh, especially the pod race sequence, they really are sort of channeling the three stooges. It's, it's very slabs. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's kind of interesting is the gentleman that they hired, uh, you know, to do this particular, to bring the, the, uh, the pit uh, droids back for chapter five of the Mandalorian Hal Hinkle, his very first job when he was hired by ILM as an animator was to do a run cycle of a Petroid for uh, the Phantom Medicine. So the weird sort of thing, you know, here he is returning to where he started his career. Um, and, and so he shows Dave the, the footage that he initially did for, uh, you know, a Phantom Menace, you know, back in the day. And and what was interesting is that both Dave and John, uh, John Favreau um, looked at it and they said, you know, we, we'd kind of like the character to be a, a little less comical in The Mandalorian than they were in The Phantom Menace. And, um, and they do really kind of dial them down for, uh, you know, the, the scene, you know, in the, uh, the hangar bay. Um, but this one, I, I know uh, you'll you'll love Dan. That um, okay? That there's a scene about midway through when they're out in the Dune Sea and Mando and Toro, that that bounty hunter kind of in training character. Um, you know, uh, Toro pulls out a scope and sees in the distance that there are, are two banthas. Um, and so here's Richard Bluff, who's been assigned to work on the effects of the scene, and he's and then again they're working on a television schedule. And on a television budget. And so it's like, wow, how do I do Banthas on a budget? And he got reminded that ILM still had footage from A New Hope that had never been seen. And so they started going through it. And they found this scene that George Lucas himself had shot of, of Banthas uh, on, you know, for the original Star Wars. And so... The weird thing is when he's looking through his scope on the Mandalorian, what he's seeing are banthas that were shot back in 1975 by George Lucas himself. So, you know, for, I mean, again, for a Star Wars fan, that's really kind of, yeah. yeah. It's that, that's that connectivity that I think, I mean, you can't help but be happy about because it involves George Lucas. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. On the other hand, again, John Favreau, uh, you know, he, you know, really you know wanted right out of the gate to the Mandalorian to sort of be special. So when he was working on, on chapter one of of this, you know, limited series, uh he he wanted to use the blurgs, which evidently were characters that were first introduced to the Star Wars universe back in nineteen eighty five with Ewoks Battle for Endor. And it oh, never right. yeah never been seen again and but john's explanation was he wanted to delve into the part of the star wars toy box that featured characters that kids had never played with so you know uh but more to the point he explained to the team that were doing the blurgs that look 
I, you know, again, I love Star Wars and I loved how the Tauntauns moved in Empire Strikes Back. And so, you know, he, so he was insisting that, you know, the Blurgs, which were partially done as, you know, practical, uh, you know, thing on the set, partially done as CG. He wanted one scene where they were done as stop motion. And so they then, you know, to get that stop motion, they actually reached out to the guys at Stupid Buddy Studios, which produced a show I know you don't particularly care for, Dan, Star Wars Detours. Yes, this was when all they were making were parodies. And fortunately, Disney bought them. They started making a serious narrative again. Yeah, no, no, I get that. I get that. But But I'm just, I'm fascinated by, there are 39 completed episodes of that show that Disney had, you know, I, the way I picture it, they're sitting on the shelf right next to song of the South. You know, they're just, they're, they're never getting out. You know, <laughs> you think they're in that part of the vault. I don't know. They got to be a little bit closer to the oxygen than that. Hopefully. I, I don't think so. But, but then, um, and, and uh, yeah, I'm going to need your help on this one. Cause this is, you know, they, this is one of those things, these tantalizing stories that get, get dropped in an article. And what was that about? Um, so again, this is, um, this is in Jody Duncan's piece about the Mandalorian and that they, they, this is the quote. Okay. Um, more than a decade ago, George Lucas was readying a live action episodic star Wars based television series. 50, 50 scripts were written and ready to go. And, you know, and it was one of these things, what, what ultimately tripped them up was the fact was, you know, face it, they, you know, Star Wars right from the get go tells you up front, you know, this happened a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And it, it was getting that look of a galaxy far, far away on a television budget uh, that ultimately tripped this show up and it didn't go into production. And I have to ask, Dan, did, did you ever – so again, you know, the timeline, they're talking more than a decade ago. So mm-hmm. 2008, 2009, um, yes. you know, you, you were going to the Star Wars celebrations then. You were going to the, the Star Wars weekends. Did you ever hear any talk about the show? A lot of talk about it. It's, this is Star Wars Underworld. This was going to be um, the level 1313 that mm-hmm. they used for some of the video games that was on below Coruscant where all the – bounty hunters and gangsters were and criminals and crime lords. And they had a lot of people working on it, including uh, one of the guys was the mastermind behind the reboot of Battlestar Galactica. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was famously arguing with George Lucas, writing one of these scripts about how Darth Vader might act, which, you know, I don't know how. And then he said, why am I arguing with George Lucas about how Darth Vader acts? Because he's, you know, George Lucas and he created Darth Vader. There we go. So, and then, and then they never, so they never actually started filming. Mostly it was because of budgetary concerns and I always sort of was relieved by that because I didn't necessarily want an underworld Star Wars. I wanted more optimism and hope. And then ironically, we ended up getting The Mandalorian, which is kind of a hybrid of all of those things. And it obviously, uh, I mean, I can't necessarily confirm this, but I feel like some of the ideas hopefully maybe sort of found their way into The Mandalorian. I, I'm, I'm sure it's possible that something inspired some of it. You just described it. I mean, you know, that the... There's clearly, you know, uh, at least some inspirational material that was drawn. And in fact, it, what's what's really great about uh, the Mandalorian is it's found that sweet spot between, you know, a, a you know a story featuring a, a you know a, a bounty hunter character and and, and I think a, 
a very uplifting, optimistic, you know, uh, sort of tone for the stories. You know, I mean, uh, <laughs> of course, you know, come October when, you know, uh, you know season two starts, <laughs> could all go dark on us, Dan. Um, you know, I hope not. I'm, I'm, I'm really, really, really looking forward to, to, to Mandalorian. I'm, and since it's all filmed already, that's, that's gotta be encouraging. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, you know, the, the, let's remember that, you know, these, the very same thing that's impacting the animation industry has got to be impacting the effects industry that if yeah. they're being told that don't come into work or work from home. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's it, it's going to be interesting to see if they can deliver a deadline. Um, you know, anyway, I, we were just talking about uh, Star Wars weekends, and in a moment, we're going to talk about the origin of the seasonal event at uh, Walt Disney World. And we're back. And so uh, now, Dan, you uh, you got down to. Any of the Star Wars weekends at, at Disney's Hollywood Studios or, or back in the day, Disney MGM? I did. I, I got there, um, I believe it was between seasons uh, one and two of Clone Wars. Oh. Uh, yeah, that sounds right. And that was when I first saw face-to-face Ashley Eckstein and Dave Filoni. Um, mm-hmm. Went to a lot of the um, stage show stuff where they did interviews and things like that. Mm-hmm. And was insanely impressed. And honestly, what I just sort of happened there. My mom and I went to mm-hmm. Disney then, and it was Star Wars weekends, and it worked out perfect. And um, I thought it was one of the one of the coolest things the theme parks had ever done. It's it's certainly pretty much a standout. How about you? Well, you know, it's, I'm I'm trying to remember. I was down um, when the the. The last one, or the, excuse me, the first one happened in '97. Um, I think I was still in Orlando at that time. Um, you know, the, 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 the you know, and it, it's one of these things where it's like I, I feel like I would have stronger memory. You know, it's like if I went, I should have stronger memories of this because people who went to it to this day still talk about it. You know, mm-hmm. there were the the character interactions or the amazing parade you know midway through the day or as you were talking about you know the the panels and the chances to to you know get autograph in fact i was just looking today uh on ebay that you know somebody is selling i guess uh david prouse and anthony um daniels anthony daniels would they were the celebrities who appeared at the very first one that's right i remember that now yeah, and you know, so the the autographed uh, black and whites. I think these were five by sevens that they gave out uh, mm-hmm. are commanding top dollar on eBay these days. But wow! But anyway, you know, the interesting thing about it, it, really, if you're tracing the origin of Star Wars weekend, you kind of have to start over at Epcot first. Uh, particularly the the seasonal events that Epcot began staging in the early '90s. I mean. Uh, and in fact, it, it's kind of unfortunate that as we're talking, uh, you know, obviously the Disney theme parks are closed and, uh, you know, the, the gentleman bio reconstruct who does all those wonderful flyovers at the Disney parks has been doing these amazing shots of Epcot with in full bloom. I mean, the, the wonderful ornate, you know, ornamental flower beds that form designs and that sort of thing. And they're, they're I mean, they're a peak of color and there's not a single soul or a single tourist in that park. 
you know, um, but, uh, you know, the first flower and garden was actually held at Epcot back in uh, 94. It was much shorter. I only ran 38 days, April 29th to June 5th of that year. But um, it did uh, an impressive thing, Dan. It got Orlando area locals who at that point, you got to remember Epcot opened in 82 and, you know, the, you know, the locals would come out if you opened a new ride or a new show. Uh, but this got them to come back to see the flower displays and uh, really boosted the bottom line. So uh, 95, they bring it back uh, April 28th through June 4th. Again, you know, significantly boosts uh, attendance at Epcot during a time of year when typically attendance, at least back then, was a little soft. Um, and again, got the locals to come out. So jump ahead to 96. And Epcot decides, well, first of all, they're going to extend, uh, you know, Flower and Garden that year, change it from a five-week to a six-and-a-half-week event. Uh, but they're also going to do a second festival. They're going to do Food and Wine, which, uh, you know, it's only four weeks in one day. you got to walk before you can run. Uh, but that's September 28th through October 27th of 96. And, but you have all of the other theme parks at uh, you know Walt Disney World, you know, and again at, at this time you got to remember uh, Disney's Animal Kingdom wouldn't open until April of 1998. So we're talking about the Magic Kingdom and what was then known as uh, Disney MGM. Um, they want to get in on this action as well. So um, October 19th, 1996, uh, Disney's Hollywood Studios stages the first ABC Super Soap Weekend, uh, two day long event. Uh, you know, allows guests to get up close and personal with their favorite performers from All My Children and General Hospital and One Life to Live and was became so popular. Uh, you know, it, it, it ran till the fall of 2008. And when uh, in, you know, kind of an ill-considered move, uh, ABC decided to go with a bunch of on-the-road events called uh, the Soap Nation that never had the impact or, you know, uh, that super soap did. And, but then of course, by then ABC's getting out of the soap business and that's a story for another time. I was working there by the way, during that stuff, I was there when, um, uh, oh my gosh, um, the most famous soap actress was her name. Why can't you just said it? Lucci. Yeah. She was there when I was working there. She was very nice. Yes. Well, that, that, that that's, you know, and I, I've heard that about her and trust me, Nancy and her mom, uh, along with our good friend Angela Ragno, uh, you know, just it was one of these things where, you know, come hell or high water in November, we were, you know, at, at Disney, uh, you know, MGM for Super Soap Weekend. And I, I literally was like the, you know, you know, the insertion team for SEAL Team 6. <laughs> <laughs> Get them to the park in the morning, and then you know at 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 the end when they would do the the big show in front of the um uh, the Chinese theater. Sure, uh, I would show up at the end of the night and collect them, and they would just spend you know until they went to bed. They would talk about all the wonderful encounters that they had with folks. So we did this year after year after year. Um, and also it's worth noting here that remember. Um, Disney only announced its intention to buy ABC cap cities in July of 1995, took them to February of 1996 to complete the acquisition. So the inaugural super soap in October that year was 
the first time that Disney demonstrated the financial community, how they intended on synergizing uh, ABC. So, um, yeah, it, 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 it was kind of a big deal. Uh, and meanwhile, over at the Magic Kingdom, uh, they had just completed a redo of Tomorrowland in June of 95, and which is why they thought this would be the perfect time, Dan, to stage the first ever sci-fi event that would happen in and around that theme park, uh, which is why in the summer of 95, the Walt Disney Company bought full-page ads in all sorts of periodicals announcing Contact 96. And this, this ad, you know, well, first of all, it has a kind of uh, enterprise sort of ship in the upper right-hand corner, but the thing that you, you'd find particularly interesting, Dan, is the, the image of, it's a Mickey... <laughs> It's a Mickey with Death Star ears, you know, I, oh, yeah. I can, you know, and, and again, it's just one of these things where it's like, I, I do not think you, that thing, you know, it, 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 you know, the, the Diego Montoya, I, I do not think that that thing means what you think it means. It's like Mickey should not have Death Star ears. Um, but anyway, here's how the event was described um, or promoted. Excuse me. The biggest sci-fi event ever is coming into a world of its own. Imagine the ultimate sci-fi vacation, meeting the greats from Star Wars, Star Trek, Lost in Space, and more, sharing the adventures of real-life visionaries and explorers, finding rare and exclusive sci-fi treasures, all in the place where fantasy comes alive. And so what they were trying to do was, of course, sell people on packages to contact uh, 96, and uh, Patrick would, would have included... Three nights at a select uh, Disney resort hotel, uh, length of stay admission to the Magic Kingdom, Epcot, and Disney MGM Studios. But here's where it gets interesting, Dan. Seminars and encounters with sci-fi stars, authors, astronauts, and other luminaries. Then unlimited admission to the Sci-Fi Museum auction collectible show, as well as lavish parties. And then access to commemorative merch uh, that's unavailable anywhere. And... You know, so and and this is how they again they, they summed it up. Contact ninety six, the first sci fi convention at Walt Disney World, January twenty first to the twenty third, nineteen ninety six. Um, and so again, you've got to be intrigued by that that Star Wars reference, right? Oh, absolutely, yeah. This is cool. So it's yeah. kind of a kind of a, you're, as you're talking, it's kind of reminding me of these different things you either heard about or read about or were there for. Mm -hmm. Uh, well, the, the the downside is there's a tiny bit of language at the bottom of the ad that reads, <laughs> events of celebrities subject to change. Prices may vary, subject to availability. And again, that tiny bit of legalese turned out to be Disney's get-out-of-jail-free card for, for when only 100 people signed up for the vacation packages associated with Contact 96. And, and to put that in perspective, the the – the special events office um, had really been expecting the sort of attendance that they, they got for the official Disneyana convention. In fact, the very first one of those that they held uh, back in September of 1992, 750 people, you know, signed up for the vacation packages. So that, you know, that was kind of the number they were looking for. Uh, and when they only got a hundred people, they, they went into the triage mode. So they, they, they changed it, uh, contact 96 from an event that was going to be held 
at the Contemporary Resort and inside of Tomorrowland, uh, uh, the Tomorrowland section of the Magic Kingdom, uh, to just an event that was primarily held inside the theme park. Um, they also canceled the idea of having any Star Wars-related celebrities at Contact 96, opting instead to have Leonard Nimoy and James Doohan from Star Trek and Billy Moomy and Jonathan Harrison lost in space. Uh, they were the ones who did panels in the Galactic Theater, and uh, they're the ones who, you know, then interacted with guests at this kind of shrunken sci-fi event. And, uh, you know, so why did Disney cancel um, you know, the, the Star Wars celebrities, uh, Dan cancels probably the wrong word. What I should be saying is postpone. Um, okay. So you remember what happened in August of 1995, right? Yes. 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 A big, big change in uh, the world of home entertainment for Star Wars. And I, and this is the thing I, I remember I would go to my friend Arlen Miller's house and he had this like shelf that was all of these infinite variations on the Star Wars, the original trilogy in, in all of its d different formats and, and such. And so, so this time around, it was what Fox entertainment announcing that in August of 1995, that this was your final chance to purchase the original Star Wars trilogy on VHS that as as I understand it, that starting on January 31st of 1996, Fox would would stop producing this specific version of the original Star Wars trilogy, um, which supposedly featured, uh, you know, a, a, an exclusive interview with George Lucas, mm, Leonard Maltin. Oh, yeah, there we go. Yeah. Um, and but this was because George was already readying the special editions of new hope empire strikes back and return of the Jedi. Um, These interviews, by the way, were the first times publicly where he would talk about, uh, you know, episode one, two, and three or something that I'm actually going to work on and do. Hmm. This was those, these were the moments where they first kind of leaked that out. I mean, he very hardly said anything, but that was when we first kind of got that seed planted. Wow. Okay. Um, now, where this gets interesting is that now Disney, again, which had a continuing relationship with Lucasfilm, and again, you got to remember, uh, Temple of the Forbidden Eye, Disneyland Park's Indiana Jones Adventure ride, that didn't open in, in the Adventureland section of that theme park till March of 1995. So, so Disney and Lucas are definitely having conversations during this period. And what had happened was that Disney Parks and Resorts had learned that the special edition of New Hope was going to be released to theaters on January 31st, 1997. That, and more to the point, it would then be followed in theaters some three weeks later by the special edition of Empire Strikes Back, which would open on February 21st, 1997. And then this special theatrical event would come to a close on March 7th, 1997, when the special edition of Return of the Jedi was released to theaters. At least that was the original plan. But uh, much to both Fox's delight and George Lucas's delight, the demand for tickets, uh, you know, especially for Empire, was so strong that they wound up pushing back the theatrical release of the special edition of Return of the Jedi by a full week. Uh, it didn't actually uh, arrive in theaters till March 14th, 1997. Um, 
So anyway, here we are. Disney Parks and Resorts learns basically two years in advance about the special editions of New Hope, uh, Empire Strikes Back, and Return of the Jedi uh, being released to theaters in 1997. Uh, that's very valuable information to have, especially if you've already got signed contracts with David Prowse and Anthony Daniels, who were supposed to show up for your Contact 96, uh, you know, a sci-fi convention. Uh, but, you know, they, but and now we're still obligated to show up for, uh, you know, some sort of sci-fi event that Disney will be holding in the not so distant future. Um, uh, so this is why February 21st through March 23rd, 1997, Disney stages the first, the very first Star Wars weekends at what was then known, uh, Disney and Jim studios. Um, and the timing, Dan, this was deliberate. Uh, you know, the thinking was that, um, you know, first of all, February 21st was the day, as we just mentioned, that the special edition of Empire Strikes Back was supposed to arrive in theaters. So kicking off this in-park event on that date would supposedly capitalize on the excitement that the special edition of New Hope had already created. And uh, also, you know, this, by picking an end date of March 23rd, well, remember, we were just talking about how, in you know, initially a special edition of uh, – Return of the Jedi was supposed to open in, in theaters on March 7th, 1997. And the thinking was, okay, it'll have a two-week run. And at the end of that two-week run, basically, that's it for the Star Wars audience. So it doesn't make any sense for us to extend any further than that. Um, but out ahead of this, um, you know, it's, again, to capitalize on the special edition of, of New Hope, uh, you know, that that's when they took the old Endor vendors, uh, you know, or Endor vendors mm -hmm. at Disney MGM and turned it into Tatooine Traders. And in fact, um, I have to ask, I, I've heard that in the the interview that George does with Leonard Moulton, do you actually get to see concept art or, or, or that sort of thing? Let me think about it. It's been a, such a long time. I mean, I actually am looking over at my in one of my bookshelves in my studio here, and I can see uh, the VHS tapes. I'll have to watch them and let you know. But, but as far as I can remember, I, I think it was just to them talking in a dark okay. uh, room with like almost like star fields around them. Okay, because because I've had folks who, who work on the retail side of of uh, Disney talk about that. I guess for tattoo for the change out from Endo vendors to tat tattooing traders mm -hmm. uh, that they they brought in concept art that had been created for the prequels and oh. <laughs> which, you know, then it said it got very interesting because you'd have star Wars fans who'd come in and not necessarily buy something, but stand there looking real hard, you know, just, you know, what or, am I looking at? You know? Oh yeah. You know? So, um, well anyway, uh, okay. So, and, and again, this thing succeeds, you know, beyond Disney's dream, but, you know, and, you know, and the folks at Lucasfilm are happy as well. So, which, which begs the question, you, you had this hit thing that happened in the winter of 1997. So why then does Disney parks and resorts wait till 2000 before they stage the next star Wars weekend? And, and, and literally we have to pivot back to uh, contact 96 that, 
basically, the folks at, at Disney World were worried that if they stage another Star Wars event without there being something like the special edition of New Hope and Empire and Return of the Jedi being released theatrically to sort of catalyze the fan base, that no one was going to come out for another set of Star Wars weekends. And so now, mind you, the people at guest relations were like, wait a minute. We get people in here every day, you know, in, in, in the years 1998 and 1999 who are asking, you know, when are you doing another Star Wars weekend? I had such a good time. Um, and so finally, in the spring of, of 2000, uh, May 5th through the 28th of that year, to be exact, Disney brings Star Wars weekends back. But even then, Disney is hedging its bet. They actually waited to see how Star Wars Episode One, The Phantom Man, did at the box office, uh, which, by the way, Dan, I don't need to tell you, but it was the top grossing film for all of 1999. That's right. Yeah, what was it? $430 million in ticket sales just in North America. I saw it 13 times in the theater. Did you really? Yeah, the last time was at a drive-in. Wow. Yep. Oh yeah, oh. I was I was nuts. I think I still probably am. <laughs> it is Star Wars after all. Oh, you know, it, I would imagine at that point you got really good at picking out uh, Queen Amidala's court. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I think I was in my early twenties. You know, uh, mid twenties probably was yeah, college and you know disposable income and a lot more time on my hands. Hmm. No, I just, I, you know, the, the weird thing is now that I know, for example, what is it, Kira Knightley? Yes. Uh, you know, the Pirates of the Caribbean films and, and that again, is a member of her court. I'll, I, you know, again, every time Phantom Menace comes on, I watch a thing and I try to pick her out. She's the I, decoy that, that is, whenever Padme is on screen with um, Queen Amidala, that the decoy is always Kira Knightley. Is it really? Yeah, yeah. Uh, now you know that when you see it, you won't be able to unsee it. It's it now. Two hours of my life gone now. I have to go confirm that. All right. So, okay. Um, but anyway, so, you know, this film winds up making $924 million worldwide. And so Disney looks at those numbers as, okay, we'll do a second weekend. But even then, even then, Dan, um, they, they're playing it safe. They, they deliberately scheduled the event for May of 2000, because that was one month after the VH ver VHS version of Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, hit store shelves, and uh, to be specific, April 4th, 2000. And, and, you know, what Disney was hoping was that would prime the pump, so to speak, for people coming down to Orlando for the second set of Star Wars weekends. And, and again, you want to talk about, you know, a, a great roll of the dice, First two days, the VHS version of Phantom Menace is on sale. They sell 4.5 million copies of the standard pan and scan version, Dan, and an additional 500,000 of the widescreen, which, you know, you know, you, you know it's, it's going to sound weird, you know, especially today when, you know, you sit there with your widescreen television watching everything on widescreen, but it was... It was very controversial back in the day. It's like, why am I to have black at the bottom of the screen and black at the top of my screen? It's like, you're seeing the whole picture. Oh, I um, remember. I remember being an advocate for that and people thinking that I was just 
you know, drinking the Kool-Aid, but no, it really, it really did make a difference. In fact, I, I have, I've got both copies. I can see them right now too. Absolutely. But, but okay. But which now brings us to the mystery. Okay. So you have those huge sales numbers for the, you know, the Phantom Menace, you know, VHS. And you have these huge crowds that turn out for the second set of Star Wars weekends at MGM Studios. So why, Dan, does it then take another 11 years for a version of Star Tours, which features the most popular sequence from Phantom Menace, the Padres, to finally open at Disneyland Park or Disney's Hollywood Studios? And I think we should save that story for another looking at Lucasfilm. But yeah, that, that's a great story in and of itself, and nobody tells them like you. Eh. So, well, anyway, I you know that. So, I I I have to ask this because again, you are so busy with coffee with Kenobi and pour over and teaching and family. So, how exactly did you find time to write this book? <laughs> a lot of late nights, and uh, there were a couple of weekends where I literally locked myself up in my office or. I actually went to a local coffee shop and just uh, sat there for nine hours and just plugged away. Dear Lord. Yeah, it was intense, but it was, it was incredibly, incredibly fun. I learned a lot about Star Wars and myself through the process. I can tell you that. Well, again, I, I, I cannot wait to, to get my hands on this book. The, the Star Wars book are going to, again, hitting Star shells October 20th, 2020. If if all the planets align, folks, and the, what are the point? The slow boat from China that brings the books over makes it here. Uh, but until that time, Dan, you know, until October of, of this year, where else can they they they, they find you know your your Star Wars knowledge? Sure, thank you. Well, uh, definitely coffee with Kenobi wherever you can find podcasts. And uh, as of this week, uh, because I'm a teacher and all Illinois schools are shut down for the foreseeable future. I've got a little extra time, uh, theoretically anyway. Uh, so I am doing Coffee with Kenobi every single day, a daily Coffee with Kenobi, Monday through Friday. Uh, so far, the response has been great. Um, the shows are about a half hour as opposed to the 45 minutes to an hour. Uh, I would just give everybody a little bit of an extra Star Wars uh, push during the day to keep them keep the smiles on your faces and help give you a nice distraction from... Uh, uh, some of the challenges that we're currently facing. And then, of course, you can find me on Twitter at Mr. Zer, M-R-Z-E-H-R. You can also email me if you have any questions about Star Wars or just want to say hello at DanZ at coffeewithkenobi.com. Oh, that's genuinely sweet that you're doing that. that that's uh, Trust me, we could all use it, uh, an entertaining distraction right about now. Uh, and hopefully <laughs> entertaining distractions. Uh, what we've got uh, on this side of the fence, we got Disney Dish with Lentesta, we got fine tuning with Drew Taylor. Which, by the way, I'm supposed to remind you, Dan, that Dave he's got that set of uh John Knoll interviews that he did for Light the Fuse, and evidently, oh, yeah. the amazing Star Wars related stories that he shares. That's great, and Drew is really good at getting uh, getting people loose and 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 comfortable chatting with him and uh yeah he's always got some great stories on that on that awesome podcast well that's where the vodka comes in that's uh, right i just said something nice about drew too speaking of vodka yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay uh what else we got uh i want that with michelle Valladolid, uh which is about disney merch which is frankly got a little challenging over the last you know, week or two mm-hmm. uh got universal joint with dustin fuse 
Uh, and again, uh, that's that's another podcast that got kind of interesting over the past week or two. And of course, uh, Marvelous Disney, the uh, the one about the Marvel Cinematic Universe that I do with Aaron Adams, the gentleman who uh, edits a lot of the podcasts here on the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network. Uh, tell you what, and, and again, uh, social media presence—you've got a fairly strong one, right? I, I mean, I know Twitter; that's where I saw the announcement of your book. Where else can folks find you on, on social media? Yeah, Twitter is the best one to reach me. And then Coffee with Kenobi has a social media presence on Pinterest, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Okay. Uh, on uh, Jim Hill Media, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram as Jim Hill Media and on Facebook at Jim Hill Media News. I still don't understand that one. Anyway, uh, tell you what, folks, uh, you know, it's, it's, we will check back in with a new show in two weeks or, or thereabouts. But until then, if you need a Star Wars fix, go check out the new daily edition of Coffee with Kenobi and pre-order that book. Uh, for now, folks, thanks for listening, and Dan and I will be back soon.